Welcome to An Adventure of One's Own, a podcast where we explore autobiographical accounts of female travellers and adventurers in their own words. I'm your host, Kylie Weber, and today we're going to be doing the first podcast. It's very exciting. I'm excited. Given that it's the first episode, I've decided to start at the beginning of one of our sister's adventures. Nellie Bly, born Elizabeth Cochrane, was an American journalist for the New York World. In the course of her career, she travelled to Mexico and criticised the government, and she went undercover as an inmate in the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island, which is an adventure story all of its own, and was the direct cause of reforms as to how the asylum was run when she broke the story. But today we're exploring a different Nellie Bly adventure. It starts in 1888, when she suggested to her editor that she race the fictional character Phileas Fogg around the world and do it in less than 80 days. Around the World in 72 Days by Nellie Bly Chapter 1. A Proposal to Girdle the Earth What gave me the idea? It is sometimes difficult to tell exactly what gives birth to an idea. Ideas are the chief stock in trade of newspaper writers, and generally they're the scarcest stock in the market, but they do come occasionally. This idea came to me one Sunday. I had spent a greater part of the day and half the night vainly trying to fasten on some idea for a newspaper article. It was my custom to think up ideas on Sunday and lay them before my editor for his approval or disapproval on Monday. But ideas did not come that day, and three o'clock in the morning found me weary and with an aching head tossing about in my bed. At last, tired and provoked at my slowness in finding a subject, something for the week's work, I thought fretfully, I wish I was at the other end of the earth. And why not? The thought came. I need a vacation. Why not take a trip around the world? It is easy to see how one thought followed another. The idea of a trip around the world pleased me, and I added, If I could do it as quickly as Phileas Fogg did, I should go. Then I wondered if it were possible to do the trip 80 days, and afterwards I went easily off to sleep with the determination to know before I saw my bed again if Phileas Fogg's record could be broken. I went to a steamship company's office that day and made a selection of timetables. Anxiously, I sat down and went over them, and if I had found the elixir of life, I should not have felt better than I did when I conceived a hope that a tour of the world might be made in even less than 80 days. I approached my editor rather timidly on the subject. I was afraid that he would think the idea too wild and visionary. "'Have you any ideas?' he asked as I sat down by his desk. 
One, I said quietly. He sat toying with his pens, waiting for me to continue, so I blurted out, I want to go around the world. Well, he said, inquiringly looking up with a faint smile in his kind eyes, I want to go around the world in 80 days or less. I think I can beat Phileas Fogg's record. May I try it? To my dismay, he told me that in the office they had thought of this same idea before, and the intention was to send a man. However, he offered me the consolation that he would favour my going, and then we went to talk to the business manager about it. It is impossible for you to do it, was the terrible verdict. In the first place, you are a woman and would need a protector. And even if it were possible for you to travel alone, you would need to carry so much baggage that it would detain you in making rapid changes. Besides, you speak nothing but English, so there is no use talking about it. No one but a man can do this. Very well, I said angrily. Start the man, and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him. I believe you would, he said slowly. I would not say that this had any influence on their decision, but I do know that before we parted, I was made happy by the promise that if anyone was commissioned to make the trip, I should be that one. After I had made my arrangements to go, other important projects for gathering news came up, and this rather visionary idea was put aside for a while. One cold, wet evening, a year after this discussion, I received a little note asking me to come to the office at once. A summons, late in the afternoon, was such an unusual thing to me that I was to be excused if I spent all my time on the way to the office wondering what I was to be scolded for. I went in and sat down beside the editor waiting for him to speak. He looked up from the paper on which he was writing and asked quietly, Can you start around the world day after tomorrow? I can start this minute, I answered, quickly trying to stop the rapid beating of my heart. We did think of starting you on the city of Paris tomorrow morning, so as to give you ample time to catch the mail train out of London. There is a chance if the Augusta Victoria, which sails the morning afterwards, has rough weather of your failing to connect with the mail train. I will take my chances on the Augusta Victoria and save one extra day, I said. The next morning, I went to Gormley, the fashionable dressmaker, to order a dress. It was after eleven o'clock when I got there, and it took but very few moments to tell him what I wanted. I always have a comfortable feeling that nothing is impossible if one applies a certain amount of energy in the right direction. When I want things done, which is always at the last moment, and I am met with such an answer, it's too late, I hardly think it can be done, I simply say, nonsense. If you want to do it, you can do it. The question is, do you want to do it? I have never met the man or woman yet who was not aroused by that answer into doing their very best.
if we want good work from others, or wish to accomplish anything ourselves, it will never do to harbour a doubt as to the result of an enterprise. So, when I went to Gormley's, I said to him, I want a dress by this evening. Very well, he answered, as unconcernedly as if it were an everyday thing for a young woman to order a gown on a few hours' notice. I want a dress that will stand constant wear for three months, I added, and then let the responsibility rest on him. Bringing out several different materials, he threw them in artistic folds over a small table, studying the effect in a pier glass before which he stood. He did not become nervous or hurried. All the time that he was trying the different effects of the materials, he kept up a lively and half-humorous conversation. In a few moments, he had selected a plain blue broadcloth and a quiet plaid camel's hair as the most durable and suitable combination for a travelling gown. Before I left, probably one o'clock, I had my first fitting. When I returned at five o'clock for a second fitting, the dress was finished. I considered this promptness and speed a good omen and quite in keeping with the project. After leaving Gormley's, I went to a shop and ordered an ulster. Then, going to another dressmaker's, I ordered a lighter dress to carry with me to be worn in the land where I would find summer. I bought one handbag with the determination to confine my baggage to its limit. That night, there was nothing to do but write to my few friends a line of farewell and to pack the handbag. Packing that bag was the most difficult undertaking of my life. There was so much to go in, into such a little space. I got everything in at last except the extra dress. Then the question resolved itself into this. I must either add a parcel to my baggage or go around the world in and with one dress. I always hated parcels, so I sacrificed the dress. But I brought out a last summer's silk bodice, and after considerable squeezing, managed to crush it into the handbag. I think that I went away one of the most superstitious of girls. My editor had told me the day before the trip had been decided upon of an inauspicious dream he had had. It seemed that I had come to him and told him I was going to run a race. Doubting my ability as a runner, he thought he turned his back so that he should not witness the race. He heard the band play as it does on such occasions, and heard the applause that greeted the finish. Then I came to him, with my eyes filled with tears, and said, I have lost the race. I can translate that dream, I said when he finished. I will start to secure some news and someone else will beat me. When I was told the next day that I was to go around the world, I felt a prophetic awe steal over me. I feared that time would win the race, and that I should not make the tour in eighty days or less. Nor was my health good when I was told to go around the world in the shortest time possible at that season of the year. For almost a year I had been a daily sufferer from headache and only the week previous I had consulted a number of eminent physicians, fearing that my health was becoming impaired by too constant application to work. I had been doing newspaper work for almost three years, 
during which time I had not enjoyed one day's vacation. It is not surprising then that I looked on this trip as a most delightful and much needed rest. The evening before I started, I went to the office and was given £200 in English gold and Bank of England notes. The gold I carried in my pocket. The Bank of England notes were placed in a chamois skin bag which I tied around my neck. Besides this, I took some American gold and paper money to use at different ports as a test to see if American money was known outside of America. Down in the bottom of my handbag was a special passport, number 247, signed by James G. Blaine, Secretary of State. Someone suggested that a revolver would be a good companion piece for the passport, but I had such a strong belief in the world's greeting me as I greeted it that I refused to arm myself. I knew that if my conduct was proper, I should always find men ready to protect me, let them be Americans, English, French, German, or anything else. It is quite possible to buy tickets in New York for the entire trip, but I thought that I might be compelled to change my route at almost any point, so the only transportation I had provided on leaving New York was my ticket to London. When I went to the office to say goodbye, I found that no itinerary had been made of my contemplated trip, and there was some doubt as to whether the mail train, which I expected to take to Brindisi, left London every Friday night. Nor did we know whether the week of my expected arrival in London was the one in which it connected with the ship for India or the ship for China. In fact, when I arrived at Brindisi and found the ship was bound for Australia, I was the most surprised girl in the world. I followed a man who had been sent to the steamship company's office to try and make out a schedule and help them arrange one as best they could on this side of the water. How near it came to being correct can be seen later on. I have been asked very often since my return how many changes of clothing I took in my solitary handbag. Some have thought that I took but one. Others think that I carried silk, which occupies but little space. And others have asked if I did not buy what I needed at the different ports. One never knows the capacity of an ordinary hand satchel until dire necessity compels the exercise of all one's ingenuity to reduce everything to the smallest possible compass. In mine, I was able to pack two travelling caps, three veils, a pair of slippers, a complete outfit of toilet articles, inkstand, pens, pencils and copy paper, pins, needles and thread, a dressing gown, a tennis blazer, a small flask, and a drinking cup, several complete changes of underwear, a liberal supply of handkerchiefs and fresh ruchings, and most bulky and uncompromising of all, a jar of cold cream to keep my face from chapping in the varied climates I should encounter. That jar of cold cream was the bane of my existence. It seemed to take up more room than everything else in the bag, and was always getting into just the place that would keep me from closing the satchel. Over my arm, I carried a silk waterproof, 
the only provision I made against rainy weather. After experience showed me that I had taken too much rather than too little baggage. At every port where I stopped, I could have bought anything from a ready-made dress down, except possibly at Arden, and as I did not visit the shops there, I cannot speak from knowledge. The possibilities of having any laundry work done during my rapid progress was one which had troubled me a good deal before starting. I had equipped myself on the theory that only once or twice in my journey would I be able to secure the services of a laundress. I knew that on the railways it would be impossible, but the longest railroad travel was the two days spent between London and Brindisi, and the four days between San Francisco and New York. On the Atlantic steamers, they do no washing. On the Peninsula and Oriental steamers, which everyone calls the P&O boats, between Brindisi and China, the quartermaster turns out each day a wash that would astonish the largest laundry in America. Even if no laundry work was done on the ships, there are, at all of the ports where they stop, plenty of experts waiting to show what Orientals can do in the washing line. Six hours is ample time for them to perform their labours, and when they make a promise to have work done in a certain time, they are prompt to the minute. Probably it is because they have no use for clothes themselves, but appreciate at its full value the money they are to receive for their labour. Their charges, compared with laundry prices in New York, are wonderfully low. So much for my preparations. It will be seen that if one is travelling simply for the sake of travelling and not for the purpose of impressing one's fellow passengers, the problem of baggage becomes a very simple one. On one occasion, in Hong Kong, where I was asked to an official dinner, I regretted not having an evening dress with me. But the loss of that dinner was a very small matter when compared with the responsibilities and worries that I escaped by not having a lot of trunks and boxes to look after. Chapter 2. The Start On Thursday, November 14th, 1889, at 9.40 o'clock, I started on my tour around the world. Those who think that night is the best part of the day, and that morning was made for sleep, know how uncomfortable they feel when for some reason they have to get up with, well, with the milkman. I turned over several times before I decided to quit my bed. I wondered sleepily why a bed feels so much more luxurious and a stolen nap that threatens the loss of a train is so much more sweet than those hours of sleep that are free from duty's call. I half promised myself that on my return I would pretend sometime that it was urgent that I should get up so I could taste the pleasure of a stolen nap without actually losing anything by it. I dozed off very sweetly over these thoughts, to wake with a start, wondering anxiously if there was still time to catch the ship. Of course I wanted to go, but I thought lazily that if some of these good people who spend so much time in trying to invent flying machines would only devote a little of the same energy towards promoting a system by which boats and trains would always make their start at noon or afterwards, they would be of greater assistance to suffering humanity. 
I endeavoured to take some breakfast, but the hour was too early to make food endurable. The last moment at home came. There was a hasty kiss for the dear ones, and a blind rush downstairs, trying to overcome the hard lump in my throat that threatened to make me regret the journey that lay before me. "'Don't worry,' I said encouragingly, as I was unable to speak that dreadful word, goodbye. "'Only think of me as having a vacation and the most enjoyable time in my life.' Then, to encourage myself, I thought, as I was on my way to the ship, "'It's only a matter of twenty-eight thousand miles and seventy-five days and four hours until I shall be back again.' A few friends who told of my hurried departure were there to say goodbye. The morning was bright and beautiful, and everything seemed very pleasant while the boat was still. But when they were warned to go ashore, I began to realise what it meant for me. "'Keep up your courage,' they said to me while they gave my hand the farewell clasp. I saw the moisture in their eyes, and I tried to smile so that their last recollection of me would be one that would cheer them. But when the whistle blew, and they were on the pier, and I was on the Augusta Victoria, which was slowly but surely moving away from all I knew, taking me to strange lands and strange people, I felt lost. My head felt dizzy, and my heart felt as if it would burst. Only seventy-five days? Yes, but it seemed an age, and the world lost its roundness, and seemed a long distance with no end, and... Well, I never turned back. I looked as long as I could at the people on the pier. I did not feel as happy as I have at other times in life. I had a sentimental longing to take farewell of everything. I am off, I thought sadly, and shall I ever get back? Intense heat, bitter cold, terrible storms, shipwrecks, fevers... All such agreeable topics had been drummed into me until I felt as much as I imagine one would feel if shut up in a cave of midnight darkness and told that all sorts of horrors were waiting to gobble one up. The morning was beautiful, and the bay never looked lovelier. The ship glided out smoothly and quietly, and the people on deck looked for their chairs and rugs and got into comfortable positions as if determined to enjoy themselves while they could, for they did not know what moment someone would be enjoying themselves at their expense. When the pilot went off, everybody rushed to the side of the ship to see him go down the little rope ladder. I watched him closely, but he climbed down and into the rowboat that was waiting to carry him to the pilot boat, without giving one glance back to us. It was an old story to him, but I could not help wondering if the ship should go down, whether there would not be some word or glance he would wish he had given. "'You have now started on your trip,' someone said to me. "'As soon as the pilot goes off and the captain assumes command, then and only then our voyage begins. So now you are really started on your tour around the world.' Something in his words turned my thought to that demon of the sea. Seasickness. Never having taken a sea voyage before, I could expect nothing else than a lively tussle with the disease of the wave. Do you get seasick? 
I was asked in an interested, friendly way. That was enough. I flew to the railing. Sick? I looked blindly down, caring little what the wild waves were saying, and gave vent to my feelings. People are always unfeeling about seasickness. When I wiped the tears from my eyes and turned around, I saw smiles on the face of every passenger. I have noticed that they are always on the same side of the ship when one is taken suddenly, overcome, as it were, with one's own emotions. The smiles did not bother me, but one man said sneeringly, "'And she's going around the world?' I too joined in the laugh that followed. Silently, I marvelled at my boldness to attempt such a feat wholly unused as I was to sea voyages. Still, I did not entertain one doubt as to the result. Of course, I went to luncheon. Everybody did, and almost everybody left very hurriedly. I joined them, or, I don't know, probably I made the start. Anyway, I never saw as many in the dining room at any one time during the rest of the voyage. When dinner was served, I went in very bravely and took my place on the captain's left. I had a very strong determination to resist my impulses, and yet, in the bottom of my heart, was a little faint feeling that I had found something even stronger than my willpower. Dinner began very pleasantly. The waiters moved about noiselessly. The band played an overture. Captain Albers, handsome and genial, took his place at the head, and the passengers who were seated at his table began dinner with a relish equaled only by enthusiastic wheelmen when the roads are fine. I was the only one at the captain's table who might be called an amateur sailor. I was bitterly conscious of this fact. So were the others. I might as well confess it. While soup was being served, I was lost in painful thoughts and filled with a sickening fear. I felt that everything was just as pleasant as an unexpected gift on Christmas, and I endeavoured to listen to the enthusiastic remarks about the music made by my companions. But my thoughts were on a topic that would not bear discussion. I felt cold. I felt warm. I felt that I should not get hungry if I did not see food for seven days. In fact, I had a great longing desire not to see it, nor to smell it, nor to eat of it, until I could reach land or a better understanding with myself. Fish was served, and Captain Albers was in the midst of a good story when I felt I had more than I could endure. Excuse me? I whispered faintly, and then rushed madly, blindly out. I was assisted to a secluded spot where a little reflection and a little unbridling of pent-up emotion restored me to such a courageous state that I determined to take the captain's advice and return to my unfinished dinner. The only way to conquer seasickness is by forcing oneself to eat, the captain said and I thought the remedy harmless enough to test. They congratulated me on my return. 
I had a shamed feeling that I was going to misbehave again, but I tried to hide the fact from them. It came soon, and I disappeared at the same rate of speed as before. Once again I returned. This time my nerves felt a little unsteady, and my belief in my determination was weakening. Hardly had I seated myself when I caught an amused gleam of a steward's eye, which made me bury my face in my handkerchief and choke before I reached the limits of the dining hall. The bravos with which they kindly greeted my third return to the table almost threatened to make me lose my bearings again. I was glad to know that dinner was just finished, and I had the boldness to say that it was very good. I went to bed shortly afterwards. No one had made any friends yet, so I concluded sleep would be more enjoyable than sitting in the music hall, looking at other passengers engaged in the first same-day-at-sea occupation. I went to bed shortly after seven o'clock. I had a dim recollection afterwards of waking up enough to drink some tea, but beyond this and the remembrance of some dreadful dreams, I knew nothing until I heard an honest, jolly voice at the door calling to me. Opening my eyes, I found the stewardess and a lady passenger in my cabin, and saw the captain standing at the door. "'We were afraid that you were dead,' the captain said when he saw that I was awake. "'Oh, I always sleep late in the morning,' I said apologetically. "'In the morning!' the captain exclaimed, with a laugh that was echoed by the others. "'It is half-past four in the evening!' "'But never mind,' he added consolingly. "'As long as you slept well, it will do you good. "'Now get up and see if you can't eat a big dinner.' "'I did.' I went through every course at dinner without flinching, and stranger still, I slept that night as well as people who are commonly supposed to sleep after long exercise in the open air. The weather was very bad and the sea was rough, but I enjoyed it. My seasickness had disappeared, but I had a morbid, haunting idea that although it was gone, it would come again. Still, I managed to make myself comfortable. Almost all of the passengers avoided the dining room, took their meals on deck, and maintained reclining positions with a persistency that grew monotonous. One bright, clever, American-born girl was travelling alone to Germany, to her parents. She entered heartily into anything that was conducive to pleasure. She was a girl who talked a great deal, and she always said something. I have rarely, if ever, met her equal. In German, as well as English, she could ably discuss anything from fashion to politics. Her father and uncle are men well known in public affairs, and by this girl's conversation it was easy to see she was her father's favourite child. She was so broad and brilliant and womanly. There was not one man on board who knew more about politics, art, literature or music than this girl with Marguerite hair. And yet there was not one of us more ready and willing to take a race on deck than was she. I think it is only natural for travellers to take an innocent pleasure in studying the peculiarities of their fellow companions. 
We were not out many days until everybody that was able to be about had added a little to their knowledge of those that were not. I will not say that the knowledge acquired in that way is of any benefit, nor would I try to say that those passengers who mingled together did not find one another as interesting and as fit subjects for comment. Nevertheless, it was harmless, and it afforded us some amusement. I remember when I was told that we had among the passengers one man who counted his pulse after every meal, and they were hearty meals too, for he was free from the disease of the wave, that I waited quite eagerly to have him pointed out so that I might watch him. If it had been my pulse instead of his own that he watched so carefully, I could not have been more interested thereafter. Every day I became more anxious and concerned, until I could hardly refrain from asking him if his pulse decreased before meals and increased afterwards, or if it was the same in the evening as it was in the morning. I almost forgot my interest in this one man, when my attention was called to another, who counted the number of steps he took every day. This one, in turn, became less interesting when I found out that one of the women, who had been a great sufferer from seasickness, had not undressed since she left her home in New York. "'I am sure we are all going down,' she said one day in a burst of confidence, "'and I am determined to go down dressed.' I was not surprised after this that she was so dreadfully seasick. One family, who were removing from New York to Paris, had with them a little Silver Sky Terrier, which bore the rather odd name of Home Sweet Home. Fortunately for the dog, as well as for those who were compelled to speak to him, they had shortened the name to Homie. Homie's passage was paid, but according to the rules of the ship, Homie was confined to the care of the butcher, much to the disgust of his master and mistress. Homie had not been accustomed to such harsh measures before, and the only streaks of happiness that came into his life were when permission was obtained for him to come on deck. Permission was granted, with the proviso that if Homie barked, he was to be taken instantly below. I fear that many hours of Homie's imprisonment might be laid at our door, for he knew how to dig most frantically when anyone said, Rats! And when he did dig, he usually punctuated his attempt with short, crisp barks. With dismay, we daily noted Homie's decrease in flesh. We marvelled at his losing weight while confined in the butcher's quarters, and at last put it down to seasickness, which he, like some of the passengers, confined to the secrecy of his cabin. Towards the end of the voyage, when we were all served with sausage and hamburger steak, there would be many whispered inquiries as to whether Homie had been seen that day. So anxious became those whispers that sometimes I thought they were rather tinged with a personal concern that was not wholly friendship for the wee dog. When everything else grew tiresome, Captain Albers would always invent something to amuse us. He made a practice every evening after dinner of putting the same number of lines on a card as there were gentlemen at the table. One of these lines he would mark and then, partly folding the card over so as to prevent the marked line from being seen, would pass it around for the men to take their choice. 
After all had marked, the card was passed to the captain, and we would wait breathlessly for the verdict. The gentleman whose name had been marked paid for the cigars or cordials for the others. Many were the discussions about the erroneous impression entertained by most foreigners about Americans and America. Someone remarked that the majority of people in foreign lands were not able to tell where the United States is. There are plenty of people who think the United States is one little island with a few houses on it, Captain Albers said. Once there was delivered to my house, near the wharf, in Hoboken, a letter from Germany addressed to Captain Albers, first house in America. I got one from Germany once, said the most bashful man at the table, his face flushing at the sound of his own voice, addressed to Hoboken, opposite the United States. While at luncheon on the 21st of November, someone called out that we were in sight of land. The way everyone left the table and rushed on deck was surely not surpassed by the companions of Columbus when they discovered America. I cannot give any good reason for it, but I know that I looked at the first point of bleak land with more interest than I would have bestowed on the most beautiful bit of scenery in the world. We had not been long in sight of land until the decks began to fill with dazed-looking, wan-faced people. It was just as if we had taken on new passengers. We could not realise that they were from New York and had been enjoying, question mark, a season of seclusion since leaving that port. Dinner that evening was a very pleasant affair. Extra courses had been prepared in honour of those that were leaving at Southampton. I had not known one of the passengers when I left New York seven days before, but I realised, now that I was so soon to separate from them, that I regretted the parting very much. Had I been travelling with a companion, I should not have felt this so keenly, for naturally, then I would have had less time to cultivate the acquaintance of my fellow passengers. They were all so kind to me that I should have been the most ungrateful of women had I not felt that I was leaving friends behind. Captain Albers had served many years as a commander of a ship in eastern seas, and he cautioned me as to the manner in which I should take care of my health. As the time grew shorter for my stay on the Augusta Victoria, some teased me gently as to the outcome of my attempt to beat the record made by a hero of fiction, and I found myself forcing a false gaiety that helped hide my real fears. The passengers on the Augusta Victoria all stayed up to see us off. We sat on deck, talking or nervously walking about until half-past two in the morning. Then someone said the tugboat had come alongside, and we all rushed over to see it. After it was made secure, we went down to the lower deck to see who would come on and get some news from land. One man was very much concerned about my making the trip to London alone. He thought, as it was so late, or rather so early, that the London correspondent who was to have met me would not put in an appearance. "'I shall most certainly leave the ship here and see you safely to London if no one comes to meet you,' he protested, despite my assurances that I felt perfectly able to get along safely without an escort. More for his sake than for my own, I watched the men come on board, 
and tried to pick out the one that had been sent to meet me. Several of them were passing us in a line, just as a gentleman had made some remark about my trip around the world. A tall young man overheard the remark, and turning at the foot of the stairs, looked down at me with a hesitating smile. "'Nellie Bly?' he asked inquiringly. "'Yes,' I replied, holding out my hand, which he gave a cordial grasp, meanwhile asking if I had enjoyed my trip, and if my baggage was ready to be transferred. The man who had been so fearful of my travelling to London alone took occasion to draw the correspondent into conversation. Afterwards, he came to me and said with the most satisfied look upon his face, "'He's all right. If he had not been so, I should have gone to London with you anyway. I can rest satisfied now, for he will take care of you.' I went away with a warm feeling in my heart for that kindly man who would have sacrificed his own comfort to ensure the safety of an unprotected girl. A few warm hand-clasps and an interchanging of good wishes, a little dry feeling in the throat, a little strained pulsation of the heart, a little hurried run down the perpendicular plank to the other passengers who were going to London, and then the tug cast off from the ship, and we drifted away in the dark. An Adventure of One's Own is written, produced, narrated and edited by Kylie Weber, with original music by Alex Kizenkov. The autobiographical works that I narrate are the product of their original authors. More information about Nellie Bly can be found in the show notes, and Around the World in 72 Days is freely available online. For more information about An Adventure of One's Own, please go to the website womenonadventure.net. See you next episode.